0: We'll start in James chapter 5. If you're new or visiting this morning, welcome. Good morning. And um, we hope you sense the Lord's presence here with us today. And um, we're in the book of James in a series called Shoe Leather Wisdom. It's just practical, down-to-earth kind of stuff. And that's why we called it that. And I want to do just a brief review from last week. Last week we started and uh, it reads like this. James 1-3 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are mothy and your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up your treasure in the last days. We talked about how James is very seeker sensitive, right? And uh, he just kind of lays it out there and says, hey, rich people, you have really ripped a bunch of people off and the issue wasn't that they had wealth. The issue was how they got it. Remember, uh, the following verses say this, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back, and the key phrase there is by fraud. You defrauded them. You, you found a way to cheat them. Are crying out against you and the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and the idea there is at others' expense you fatten your heart in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. So, James is addressing those who have gotten rich by, but by illicit means, right? They've found a way to rip people off and the call for them was to repent because it was not going to go well for them before the Lord. Those descriptions he gives aren't pleasant, right? And so, we talked about how a spirit of greed and hoarding and self-indulgence can be countered by mercy and compassion and sacrificial generosity, as exhibited in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We use that parable to contrast these verses in this situation. And we also point out that self-indulgence can get to the point of murdering other people to get what you want and where you want to go. And uh, I was given several stories um, by people this week and. Um, just of those kind of situations in the business world, so it's a fascinating deal. This week we're going to look at the other side of the coin. So the side of the, that was that last week. Those this week we're going to look at those who are under persecution and suffering, and how we should respond when we are. All right. So let's let's pray, lift us up to the Lord, and then we'll look at this. Father, thank you for this morning. It's a beautiful summer day. It's been a great week. We uh, have seen your hand at work, and Lord, as we. Come and look at this this morning. We're going to talk about some things that we're not good at most of the time. Uh, Every once in a while we'll hit it right, but more often than not, we misfire on these, especially when we're under pressure. And and I would like to ask for your grace this morning for give us eyes to see, but not get despondent and just recognize it's a a place where we have to lean into you again. And we seek you for that this morning and ask for that in your name. Amen. All right, so just as the judgment of God is right at hand for those who have taken unfair advantage of others in uh, getting ahead, so now James shifts the discussion to those who are on the receiving end of such behavior. Remember, this group of people are in exile, right? They've gotten chased out of Jerusalem. They've been scattered all throughout Israel and other countries. And James has written this letter to them uh, while they're in those circumstances. And one of the things that's really hard to do, I, I find that it takes me time. And if I, I think about it long enough, it starts to connect. But it's really hard to connect with what emotionally is going on, right? We read this passage and go, yeah, it's a head thing. God, check, check, check. Okay, where's, where, let's, where's my coffee? Let's go have lunch, right? And it doesn't connect on the feeling level, the, the, you know, the sensory level, and. Um, the questions, the, the trauma of these people, and like, they lost their homes. Uh, if you've read about the car fire this week, right? Uh, close to 1,100 homes uh, gone up in flames, and uh, right now there's five to 12,000 homes in danger of the fires flaring up again. And the question is, do we ever get back home? Right? Same thing in Hawaii, right? The, there's nowhere to go back to. Think about if you went home today and your house is up in flames. What do you do? Where do we go from here? Uh, How do we survive in this new place? It's not like they opened us with welcome arms. We're kind of here, but uh, they're not really happy we're here. And uh, you know, how do we fit in? Um, The big question: How long is this going to last? Right? I don't like this. This hurts. How long is this going to last? I was done with this yesterday. Anybody been there? Right? And as always, does God really see what we're going through? And maybe even more importantly, does He care? Is it even uh, register on His scale? The stumbling in this issue is, uh, what I'm trying to point out is it's understandable. We can relate really well to that today. Those are the kind of things we, those are the questions we ask when we go through things that are difficult for us. And basically, there's a, there's a, a running dialogue behind those questions, which it says this, this is not the way things were supposed to go. You ever had that? This is not the plan I had. This is not the way life was supposed to roll out. I I don't want this. I'll never, because of this, I'll never get back to normal. Right? Um, This is stupid. What good is this accomplishing anyways? I don't see the sense of this. What, is God just bored and he's got a sick sense of humor? And so he wants to watch people suffer? What's going- hey, you know, no, 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 no! Right? I don't want this. I didn't ask for this. I don't need this. I'm trying to add emphasis to that so you can feel that, right? Okay. If God really loved me, he'd do something to change this. If he's not going to change this, then by God I will, which is a strange statement, right? Think about that once. But we say that. This is the only life I have. And this is going to be the path? I mean, this is it? Really? No. No, I, I don't want that. And and James's exhortation in all of this is to be patient. Delightful, right? You're looking so enthusiastic as a crowd right now. We're rolling with you, Mitch. James says, God sees and God knows. Now the carrot, if you will, that he hangs in front of them, uh, that he's holding out for them, is the coming of the Lord. He said, understand that when the Lord comes back, all things will be made right. And all things will be back to the way they're supposed to be. When the Lord comes, He will right the wrongs. And that's the warning to the rich that we covered last week. Be very careful if you think you're getting away with it because really you don't get away with anything and the Lord will right all those wrongs. But therefore in this passage um, reflects back to the passages that we covered uh, in review this morning. James is saying, in spite of what you've seen and in spite of what has been unjustly done to you, unpaid wages and even murder, stay patient and wait for the coming of the Lord. And then he again kicks to a farming illustration. We have to understand it's a total farming culture. You're agrarian, right? Now we're not agrarian. Some of us have lawns and we think that's farming, and and we hate them because of that. And some of us have little plots in the back of our yard or a garden. Margaret's got chickens, right? I mean, but we're far from an actual farming uh, culture at this point. But he uses the um, an illustration that they certainly would have understood to illustrate his point. And the point is that farmers, by nature, have to be patient. You can't force crops to grow faster. It doesn't matter if you look and stare at them, it doesn't matter if you blow wind on them, it doesn't matter if you yell at them. Plants don't grow faster, they just grow at the rate that they grow. And therefore, farmers have to wait, they, they have to be patient. Uh, The reference to the early and late rains is the idea that they have to wait for several months before the crop is harvested, and the crop's dependent on some stuff. It's dependent on the early rains, and it's dependent on the late rains, so you may have got the early rains, but you still don't know if you'll have a crop because you have to wait and be patient for the late rains to come, right? right? And in that, there can be what we would call this thing worry or anxiety develops, right? Will they, won't they? Will they come? Will I have a crop? Right? And, and, um, but no amount of worrying or anxiety, what James is saying, is going to speed the process up either. Have you ever done that in normal life, tried to speed it up by worrying about it? How well does that work? Usually, in my experience, it slows it down. Right. So by nature, farmers have to be patient while facing a number of situations that could be potentially devastating to their crops. Uh, some things I listed, drought, wind, flooding, blight, fire are all potential enemies that have to be thought of as the crop grows. And yet the farmer has to continue and believe that there will be a crop. And James is saying that's very similar to the believer has to believe that there will be a good outcome at the end by faith. We sang about it this morning. Did you notice that? Bear your cross as you wait for your crown. It was right in the songs that we sang. Likewise, the believer, that's that's us, in spite of the injustices and wrongs committed against them, is commanded to stay patient and wait for the day of the Lord. The phrase, establish your hearts. I got the wrong scripture there, don't I? Here we go. There we go. Sorry. The phrase, establish your hearts, uh, is an important one. It, 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 It talks about, The coming of the Lord is at hand. So James exhorted them to be patient in their trials and sufferings. So also we're exhorted to exercise patience. Now, as Americans as a whole, how good are we at patience? Just put us in traffic. How well do we do? Put us in a grocery line. Put us in a movie line. Put us in any line. Right? How well do we do? You ever get cut off? Yeah, ever? We don't normally do very well with patience. Uh, for us, patience is about a minute, and that was too long. But this phrase, uh, establish your hearts here, it says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The It, it, it means to um, to anchor, to be steadfast, to not give up on faith in the Lord Jesus when things are tough or they seem to be stalled out, that you hang in there and you keep your faith Anchored. it. speaks of steadfastness and perseverance to keep going in the right direction in spite of obstacles or hardships. And it also counteracts something else that we're prone to uh, when we encounter difficult or grinding circumstances. I like that term grinding circumstance. I don't know where that came from. I mean, the Lord probably gave that to me, but you ever been in a grinding circumstance? It just doesn't let up. Uh, I, for me, that was kidney stones. Okay. That's a grinding circumstance. Trust me. Okay, you wouldn't wish that pain on your worst enemy. Others of us have other things that are that. But James then kicks to this, and he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he's using this whole issue of patience and being established, and then says, and, and don't grumble. There are many ways, I was thinking about this, is that God is vastly different from us. Right? If you think about it, there are a lot more things that are different about God uh, than, than we have in common. But there's one thing that we have in common with God that uh, really is something that uh, we, we totally can understand. We get it. We're like Him in this. And what's that? He hates grumbling, uh, grumbling and complaining spirit. So do we. Have you ever been around somebody who's a grouch? Right? I mean, just an old, crotchety grump bucket. Nothing's ever right, nothing's ever good, nothing you ever do is enough. Right? And it just wears on you. And the ability to grumble and complain knows no limits, and if allowed to, will take over someone's personality. It can actually swallow you. And, and so James is warning against this is warning against this uh, this drive in us to grumble and complain. He's pulling off here uh, from a well-known illustration in the Old Testament, and that's from the wilderness wanderings, right? Israel coming out of Egypt and moving to the Promised Land, and they kind of get stalled out for 40 years. That's a stall. Okay, That's your life right there. Take 40 years of your life and just put you in a desert. Boy, aren't we happy. Once you get the context of that, you start to understand, wow, I could have failed in that really badly, right? Uh, the story comes from the book of Numbers. Do and and you remember Dathan and Abiram and Korah who opposed Moses and they, they led a rebellion? And it says what? That they caused Israel to grumble in their tents. So in their tents, they grumbled and murmured. Who are they grumbling and murmuring against? Moses, right? Aaron as well, but primarily Moses. But God doesn't see it that way. God took the grumbling personally and said they were actually grumbling against him. And that didn't sit very well with them. If you read his reaction there in those stories, it is not a very good reaction. Paul writes the same thing in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Uh, if you want to turn there, it's actually a great passage. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, book of Philippians. He says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Another translation says grumbling or complaining. Okay. Disputing has to do with having a contentious spirit. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What is a hallmark of a twisted and crooked generation? A grumbling spirit. Nobody's happy. Everything's bad. Versus a spirit of gratefulness. By the way, in our culture, if you want to be different, you want to really be a rebel, you want to do something, be happy. Be grateful. You'll stick out like a sore thumb. Trust me. People are like, what? Who gives I once had a guy counter me and so who, who gives you the right to be so happy? He used other words in there too. Yeah. It, it's it's strange in our culture. That you may be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And Paul's talking about one of the ways you stay out of this complaining spirit is by staying in the Word. Staying in the Word keeps you grateful. And he says, when you do that, you shine like a light in the culture around you. What James and Paul are are both saying, and I think it's imperative for, for us to understand, is this. God's eyes are on this one. God's watching on this one. This one catches his attention. He's watching for who's grateful and he's watching for who's grumbling. And the point they're trying to get across is it's not okay with them. It has to be understood that when we grumble and complain and find fault with each other, it's really not each other that we're finding fault with, but who? God. Ultimately, we're telling God what a crappy job he's doing in running the universe. I mean, if you want to just put it straight out, that's really what we're saying. And that if we were in charge, it would operate a whole lot better. Now, is that slightly arrogant or what? Anybody see a problem with that? Thus also comes into play uh, animosity, revenge, cheap shots, control tactics. And if none of that works, go back to the beginning, go back to square one, and complain and grumble about the fact that none of those worked either. It's just a vicious cycle that we can get caught up in. James and why were they grumbling? They were refugees. They didn't like their situation. They didn't like what they had to face. They didn't like what they were up against. And they, they lost track of the fact that God's in charge of all things and that he can take them through the tough things. And Jeremiah says, hey, if you can't run with footmen, how are you going to run with horses? Or if you can't run when things are good, what are you going to do when things are really bad? And that would be a word to us. We've had it really good for a really long time in this country. And when things start to go south, it's really easy to sit back and just start to complain and grumble instead of pray. And that's a telltale symptom. Do you grumble or do you pray? As an aside, if you suffer from or have indulged in this kind of behavior, it would be wise to repent and renounce it before we come to communion this morning. Just thought I'd throw that in there, free of charge. James goes on with the illustration. He says this, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How many of us have ever sat back, you know, if, you, if you've read the old stories, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, how many of us ever sat back and said, man, if we could just have that kind of power, the kind of power that the prophets of old had, right? Just call it down and, you know, bust this culture on its chops and, you know, just really be used by God in a significant way. Ah, oh, you know, if we, could, if we could just have power like that, wouldn't that be awesome? If you haven't, I have, right? Smoke them, baby little tendrils coming up. But James in his wisdom points out another side of being a prophet of the Lord that is not so glamorous. It was a difficult assignment at best and filled with suffering, hostility to the message, loathing from your own people, accused of wrong motives, uh, accused of lying, and often it cost the prophet his life. The book of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 30-35, puts the prophet's experience this way. It says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. Some were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's a direct reference to uh, Isaiah and during the reign of Manasseh where they took a hollow log, stuffed them in, and sawed the log in half. All right, Great way to go. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And that is true. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves. You know, we think of John the Baptist, right? What did he wear? Camel's hair. Itchy, scratchy stuff. What did he eat? Locusts. Mmm, yummy. Want to have some locusts for lunch? Okay. Not very glamorous, right? All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And that point of being perfect is that we get the chance to go through the same stuff they did. Only we have something they didn't have. What was that? We know the end of the story. We know about Jesus. We know about the resurrection. They only had a promise of a Messiah coming. We have the actuality of Him coming. And therefore, we should be able to respond to the trials better because we know something they didn't know. And the question is, do we? Uh, I'm going to ask the guys if you would come forward and pass out communion while we set up the rest of this. Thank you so much. Or James goes on and says, take the life of Job. you ever read the book of Job? Hey? It's an amazing book. The the more I read it, and I've read through it now for like 35 years, the more profound it becomes. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Lisi Goebel, Reiner and Char's daughter, Reiner and Char right over there, came up to me and said, Pastor Steve, she had a question about the Bible. She said, Pastor Steve, how long was Job suffering? And I said, Lisey, that's a great question. I have no idea. And uh, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do some research on it. Let me... Let me look up some stuff and I'll get back to you. And so she said thanks and took off and I came back to her last week and I told her, you know what? Go ahead. Just pass. Yeah. I said, you know what? I have checked everything I know and nobody really knows. You know, we know that the children died so they probably had funerals and we know that their friends got together and they heard and they probably didn't live next door. And we know that they came and they sat with him. But we don't know how long they sat with him. We don't know how long it went. But what we do know is the extremity of what he went through and how busted up Job was and, and how difficult it was. It says that his body was covered and racked with sores. Right, That he would take a piece of pottery and scrape them because they are full of pus. And he'd do that just to get the pus out. And that—that's what it says. Read it. Not making it up. You give me that look. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, that says it right in the text. And and we know that he went through enormous emotional grief, right? And uh, but James is talking about Job. Why does he pull Job? What what's his point in pulling Job? Well. When you ask, uh, oh, by the way, the old saints, uh, when they talk about Job, would say he was in anguish of soul, right? That's how they would best describe his situation. He was in anguish of soul. That's not a very pleasant place to be. Um, but when you think about it, what was Job applauded for? What, what was he given high marks for uh, by God? What, what did God go that a boy, that 's my son. Have you noticed my servant Job? What was it that really stood out to God and got god 's attention? and it 's this: after the loss of his property, after the loss so he lost his stuff, then he lost his herd, so he lost his means of provision to be able to feed himself and his family, and after the loss of his children, what could be more disastrous than that, right? And not some of them, but all ten. Lost all ten in one shot. Imagine going to that funeral. Then it says this in Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. Listen to this. It says this. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the script goes on to say this, and in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What so stood out to God, Job refused to grumble or complain about his circumstances. He continued to worship in spite of what was going on. And he continued to bless the name of God even in the midst of that kind of loss. That's why Scripture says, That is the illustration of all illustrations for how we should react and respond under pressure. Because it says Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. James uses this illustration to say that you've seen the steadfastness of Job. Right? You've seen, and basically what he's saying is, look, you've seen how he hung in there. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He didn't cave. He didn't succumb to bitterness. He didn't succumb to whining and complaining and grumbling and all that stuff that normally overtakes us. Likewise, do the same. Be the same way. And James goes on a little farther and he says this, you saw the whole purpose of the Lord. The whole picture. Likewise, trust God's whole purpose with you. That's why James is pulling this illustration. It's that there. It's that street leather, right? Yeah, I know it's tough. I know it's hard. Stop complaining and grumbling. It says, For the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He will make things right. Therefore, be patient. We normally want things to turn around quickly. Especially when they're godly things. God, this is Your will. I'm praying Your will. Turn it now. And very seldom does it work that way. What the Bible's trying to teach us, what James is trying to teach his people, what we need to learn, and it's a lifelong class, things are not always the way they seem. And you have to trust God to work out His purposes in your life no matter how they seem. Whether you feel like He's there or not really has no bearing on the situation because the fact is He is. And so we're to lean into that. So here's the questions for this morning. As we come to communion, stop for a second and just ask yourself, how are you doing in the patience and trust department? As you look over the scenery of the maybe the last week or two weeks or... Maybe the last month or maybe the last couple of years. How are you doing in the patience and trust department? Or on the other side of the coin that we've looked at this morning, have you allowed a spirit of grumbling and complaining to snag your spirit? Do you find yourself just constantly muttering under your breath and grousing about the way things should be? Notice, And this ties beautifully with communion. The Lord gave me this, so if you don't like it, it's not me you don't like. This is awesome. Notice at the Last Supper how steadfast and patient Jesus was. Think back to that picture. Wasn't it amazing how cool under pressure He was? He was unflappable. He wasn't rattled. And He was steadfast and patient, not only with the circumstances, but he was steadfast and patient also with the people he had around him. Who you don't have to read very far in Scripture to realize they, could, they were a rather unnerving bunch, right? Those disciples. They didn't quite exactly get it right. And also notice, and I think this is really remarkable of who he is, that his spirit, Jesus' spirit, was free from complaint or grumbling. When they go to the garden of Gethsemane, he does ask for this burden to be removed, if it's possible. But then, notice he does not grumble about what he has to do or fall into a spirit of complaint. He says, but as you will, Father. He knew it was a tough assignment. He knew it wasn't pretty. He knew it was going to be brutal. He knew what the purpose was. And he said, Dad, if we've got to go through this, okay, let's go through it. He didn't grumble or complain. And if you want to ask why Jesus is our hero, that's one of the reasons he's our hero. This week at camp, we called students into a a life of discipleship. Literally, they take God at his word and follow his footsteps. James says that you have to develop patience to do that. And you have to move away from a spirit of grumbling and complaining. Scripture also tells us that we need to examine ourselves when we come to communion. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing in chapter 11, In verses 27 to 32, Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment of himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some of you have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What he's saying there is... Look at how Jesus went through the Last Supper and measure that against how you've done over the last week. How'd you do? And if you didn't do well, stop and admit before the Lord that you didn't do well before you go to communion. Because otherwise we turn communion into a charade and a game and we posture that we're really spiritual and holy and the truth is we're ugly and grumbling and complaining on the inside. And God's not impressed. Not impressed with us. right? Gong, thanks for playing. Not going to fly. Now why would I press that point? Okay, here's why. I know us. I know me. I have other words we could use for grumbling, complaining. You can't use them in church. right? But we do it all the time. We're supposed to be the resurrected saints and we are more like the grumbling corpses. And we get our nose bent at the slightest stuff. And we get out of whack and we just verbally vomit all over the people closest to us. And then we think God doesn't notice that stuff. And I'm trying to tell us this morning, He does. And it matters to Him. And we should take it as seriously as He does. It says, But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Why would God rebuke us in love this morning on this topic? Because He loves us. Right? He knows what this does to us. He knows what the stain does to us. He knows what that does to our children. He knows what uh, that does to parents. He knows what that does to family structures. And He's pleading with us to get that out of our system. So when we come to communion this morning, the question is where are we at? Where are we at? Did you hear the Lord talking to you? I want to give you just a minute so that you can go before the Lord. And if you need to clean house, you need to scrub a couple hallways clean and get some stuff cleaned up there before the Lord, you have the chance to do that. So would you just close your eyes? Hey, just don't worry about the person next to you. How has your spirit been? Has it been grateful or grumbling? If it's grateful, you're in good shape. If it's grumbling, just ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to get that sourness out of your spirit. Ask for His help. price that was paid. Scripture tells us James was saying the same thing. Is that. is Jesus died for things just like this. This is the kind of stuff He died for. And the picture is, right, He went on the cross, said His body was broken. Shattered would be a better word. Tored up or mangled would probably work even better. For that, this kind of sin. He says, eat this in memory of me. It also says His blood was shed. His blood covers our sin. Our sin can be washed away this morning. That's why we come to Him. He heals. He cleanses. He restarts. There's a do-over because of His shed blood. Jesus said, drink this in memory of me.